This is The Book Show. I'm Nuala O'Connor and on tonight's show I'm talking about historical fiction. Historical fiction is enjoying a resurgence in popularity. This may be the Hilary Mantel effect. Two man Booker Prizes and a successful TV series are enough to make even the most sceptical ears prick up. Another coup for the genre was Sebastian Barry's second win of the Costa Book of the Year with Days Without End, set during the American Civil War. The past may be an odd and chaotic place, but it's one readers seem happy to escape to. Whether your preference is for bonnet nostalgia or war-convulsed landscapes, for lesbian love affairs or time travellers to Jacobean Scotland, there's a historical fiction title for every taste. I'm delighted to be joined in studio by two writers of historical fiction. Neve Boyce is the author of The Herbalist and in the new year will publish her novel about 14th century Irish woman and suspected witch Alice Kittler. Paul Lynch's novel Grace won the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year. Delighted to welcome you here. Thanks, Nora. Great to be here. Lovely to be here. Um, I'll start with you, Paul. Your novel Grace is set in famine-era Ireland and the title character Grace is forced out of her home by her own mother. And she's on the cusp of adolescence and she wanders through an Ireland that's in deep trouble. It's dark and dangerous times. Uh, Survival is quite difficult. Uh, We'll talk about the novel in a moment, but maybe you could give us a sense of the danger Grace faces by reading a a small extract for us. Sure. Well, here's I'm going to read from the opening. Uh, We're in 1845 in Donegal at the Sound. And Grace finds herself being dragged out of bed by her mother and she thinks something horrendous is going to happen because she's heard stories of children being put to death and all sorts of whispers among all, from her brother and other kids. But what's actually unfolding is that her mother is about to cut her hair off and send her out on the road. Then Sarah moves quick, takes a fist of the girl's hair to lay bare the porcelain of her throat, brings up the knife. All the things you can see in a moment. She thinks there is truth after all to Collie's story. She thinks the last you will see of ma'am is her shadow. She thinks, take with you a memory of all this. A sob loosens from the deepest part and sings itself out. What she meets is the autumn of her long hair. It falls in swoons, falls at glittering of evening colours, her hair spun with failing sunlight. She sobs at the pain in her scalp as her mother yanks and cuts sobs as her hair falls in ribbons, her eyes closed to their inner stars. That was Paul Lynch reading from his novel Grace. Um, It sets up the menace, I think, for the book with her mother chopping off her hair to try and make her look like a boy and then Mm. sends her out into a world of men. I'm very interested personally in era-appropriate language, I suppose, and the language in the book is very beautiful and very unusual. And how did you go about imagining yourself into that time? It's a tricky process because what you're looking for is a sense of style that approximates the feeling of life for the character. And so you have to be very close to the character. You have to really be, be inside her skin all the time. So what she sees and feels and what she experiences, the language has to be able to follow her and to uh, come as close as I can through third person to that experience. But of course, there are always uh, certain revisionistic things that work in the novel. So, for example, I made a decision with speech um, to render it in a more straightforward fashion than to go and present a very highly authentic um, very what would have been a very wrought Donegal dialect on the page, uh, which would have been a lot of work for readers. Sometimes that kind of thing can alienate readers. They just don't 
they don't buy it and it can sound mildly stage Irish as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is the thing. You, the writer has to decide really that what they're doing is they're creating their own mythology in certain respects that, you know, that my novel is set in famine Ireland, but it's also what I'd call a Paul Lynch novel. So it has, its its sensibility is full of my sensibility. So the language and the, the attitudes in, in the book that it strikes are, reflect how I feel about things. And so that's, that's a very, you know, a very modern mindset. Absolutely, that's it. We bring ourselves to our novels no matter whether we like it or not. Yeah. Niamh, your forthcoming novel is a work of biographical fiction looking at 14th century Irish woman and suspected witch Alice Kittler, ostensibly her, but really her maid Petronelle. And I was wondering, what was the prevalence of alleged witchcraft in Ireland at that time and who was Petronelle? How did you discover her? Ireland isn't known for witchcraft trials. We don't have the worldview, and we didn't then, that uh, actually thought in terms of, of witches when we were thinking about evil or the witch trials that happened in Europe happened around 200 years after this case. It's in 1320s Kilkenny and the allegations are made by a bishop called the Dread uh, to a very, very wealthy woman. Uh, interesting when, you, when you're, if you're found guilty of, of heretical sorcery, all your land and money is taken by the church. So um, <laughs> it was probably very handy. You know, it's politics, really. So Bishop Ledred accused Alice Kittler of uh, sorcery and um, it was supported by her stepchildren who accused her of making ill their father, you know. Um, a lot, it really, when it came down to it, it was follow the money. Yeah. yeah, when you look at a case like that. Can you just tell us, Neve, who was Petronelle? How did you hear about her? How did she come to your attention? Yeah. Alice's maid. It's, it's, it's her that made the story interesting for me because um, if even though it's Alice's, there's a place called Kittler's in Kilkenny and her name is quite famous. It was actually her maid. As a wealthy woman, she, she got to escape and it was actually her maid who was burned at the stake. And she was the first person to be burned for sorcery in in Europe. You know, heresy is a different matter. Yeah. But um, so she's it's quite a historically significant case in terms of the history of witchcraft. Really, she's the one who, you know, you think who owns this story? She's the one who obviously it, it affected most. It ended her life. And all we know about her is the day she died and her name. Yeah. So that left me also with a little bit in terms of character a little bit more scope as well. To build know. her out, yeah. It poor did, yeah. Petronelle yeah. had the bad fortune to be poor and obscure. Yes, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Paul, do you feel that despite all recent successes in this genre and a renewed interest in it, that historical fiction still has a bit of an image problem? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, I would never even have said that I write historical fiction at all. Um, mm. I'm reading a, a paperback, an American paperback at, at the moment, and on, on the top it's, um, it just says fiction stroke literature. That's good enough for me. Um, Where is it set? Is it set? Um, this particular book is, is historical. Yeah. Um, is it, you know, but there has been a surge of writing backwards. But the image problem is, is multifold because there has been a genre for a long time that has certain expectations. Some of those expectations might be, you know, an, an infinite level of detail about a particular period. And then, then there's, the, the, you know, there's particular genre concerns as well. And, you know, in, in terms of uh, the literary fiction side of things, which is, you know... Are you talking about historical detail there? Um, you know, who the king was at the time and all of that sort yeah, of Yeah, but you thing. often find in, in this, these kind of historical novels that they, they're they front-loaded with factual information. Yeah. Um, but for me, like with Grace, you have a 14-year-old girl who actually knows nothing about the world and she's out on this, this road journey, essentially. Yeah. 
So I have to write in such a way that I understand what I might call the physics of that world that she's in, but she doesn't understand any of it. So I'm not peppering or layering in layers of knowledge that she can't know. Exactly. Hilary Mantel, who I'm always quoting because I love her, (laughs) talks about you follow what's important to your character and that's essentially what you're following. It doesn't really matter who was king or queen or whatever like that. How do you feel about the image of historical fiction? Oh, I cringe. But I remember a moment when um, my first book came out um, and The Herbalist and and, uh, I went to the Irish Writers' Centre Novel Fair. It was was the first year of it. And I had to explain to 20 agents one after another what my book was. And I avoided all through saying it was historical. But they kept telling me it was. And in a way, I sound so innocent, but I just wrote the book I wanted to write. and And as a reader, I don't read historical fiction in general when you put a, a term like historical in front of writer for me it, I, I feel claustrophobic I feel it's and a box. I, yeah and I you do know. feel as well but I don't write what I think of as, as historical and another way is with the kind of writing that, I, that I'm doing at the moment and, and with your own book we're actually answering back to history so we're taking a pick to it it's not within that genre of um taking what's established and just fitting snugly in and finding a little story. There's there's so much of history. History failed us, I think. You know, very big, you know, yeah. <laughs> one, you know, a big kind of statement. It was completely failed us and it, it falls short. And when it falls short, that's when we want to write. You know, we talk about famine, with the famine, with the Irish famine, people haven't touched it in a way, are beginning to. And with with my the case I wrote about in Harkind, there was a version of it written by the by the bishop himself, a whole narrative, Naturally. which was very exciting to find. But it's his version for exactly. you know. So in a way, that would be what would be called the history bit, and I want to break that up and you know shatter it in a exactly. way. Exactly, and yeah. both your novels bring female characters to the fore and tell their story stories we haven't heard before. I I think there's an unfortunate paradox about, um, you know, the term historical fiction because, you know, the novels are actually more contemporary than they are historical. You know, that that a novel, when it's written, can only be shaped by the moment that it comes from, from the contemporary tumult. You know, that you write with language that's been shaped by the world that we're in now, by ideas. Yeah, we can Uh, only write out of our own era. We bring our own style and our own assumptions. They're not free of their own subjectivity either. But we also bring our own freedoms. Yes. You know, we bring that to the page. When I was researching Becoming Bell, I went to the, part of the research was I went to the archives at Kew and I was able to hold and handle Belle's marriage certificate and being able to kind of touch her signature there was no white gloves or anything was a real sort of sublime moment for me in my research and I'm wondering did you have any of those moments when you were researching that you found out something that just felt glorious and made you think I'm on the right path with this I know what I'm doing here There was many things on the the way that helped with research or with a book that you know was going to be big I suppose in terms of research because it's so far away from from where we live you're looking for a way in all the time that moment where you feel ah I'm in now I'm not on the outside you know feeling my way around trying to see the world you know I spent a lot of time just trying to do enough research and to write enough in the voice to see the world and be comfortable in it I do remember two thirds way through the book and I'd written a character who was a comb maker but it's from bones and it was a very particular skill and I just got it into my head. There's there's a comb maker. I can see him. And so I wrote about him and I started to research how you would actually, you know, what bones, what animals were used, what antlers. And I was reading some recent archaeological dig that had been done on, on Cathedral Hill where where the bishop 
uh, lived and where they had just found a little site which showed that there had been a bone maker working there. There was a huge amount of bone. So it, it showed and I was like, of course, I'm not psychic, you know, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or anything like that. But it just went, oh, I yeah, trust your gut, Neve. This feels so right. This this guy was there, yeah. you know, and suddenly I was I'd gone from writing about to actually you know, trusting, trusting the book, exactly, trusting yeah. the details. It was a beautiful it. detail that the yeah. comb maker, because yeah. yeah, you just take yeah. plastic combs for granted now. But what a gorgeous thing! Yeah, Paul, did you have any sublime yeah. moments? I found myself reading a lot about Mao's famine in China because the archives had been opened and historians were allowed access. And fifty-nine to sixty-two, something like thirty-something million people were killed. But the thing about that famine was it happened in totalitarian communism. So everything was recorded. Nothing was missed. And it's full of testimony. And I'm reading this and it occurs to me that this is all the stuff that we don't have about the Irish famine. This is all the stuff that we'd like to pretend didn't happen in the Irish famine. But there are universal human behaviours that occur in times of enormous distress. Can you give us an example of one of those things that you're referring to? Cannibalism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. These things did happen in Ireland. And the information that I was reading from these books was fueling the, the need to write the book, to, to open it up to the bone. Very difficult to, to yeah. research and, yeah, difficult to read too. I found a lot of menace in both of these books. Bad things happen to your protagonists and to other people along the way. Can you talk maybe a little, Paul, about this, um, the menace and living with the menace as you wrote the book and how did that feel? It's an interesting question, you know, because Grace comes of age in this novel. She starts out as she's 14 and, you know, that's that's a very, very raw age. You know, as you project yourself into this world, it, it is dystopian. The thing is, the famine's unfolding slowly through the book, so she doesn't even know she's in a famine. You know, and we don't get to the horrors of, say, 47 till much later on. She has to respond and as the book develops, she is pulled into criminality. She spends time with grabbers who are people who, who buy cattle and, 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 you know, property cheap from people who, who, you know, who need to sell. And then she descends into into full, full-fledged criminality and it becomes part of what haunts her later in the book that, that when she comes out of the famine and she, she is rescued sort of miraculously by this kind of millennialist cult, she has to atone for what she's, for, for what, what she's been through. And the thing is, is that people who survive events like this are rarely heroes. And she has to become the thing that we all think we wouldn't become to survive. But she survives and then she atones and, you know, the book, the ending of the book is, is, is about her healing and her sort of, you know, um, becoming normal again. Yeah. And she literally goes into a very black place for a while. Beautifully done, I have to say. Really yeah. beautifully done. You handled it so nicely. So powerfully, I should say. Um, Neve, you might give us a little sneak peek of your next novel with a short reading, please. This is uh, set in Kilkenny Castle and it's on All Hallows, 1324. By first bell, a crowd had gathered beneath the trees. They wore cloaks lined with rabbit or vare according to the rank. Despite the snow, they waited, watching the castle gates. They argued constantly. Of the witches locked inside the castle jail, which would be the first to confess, which, if any, was innocent. As prime was rung, figures appeared at the top of the hill. The prisoners had left the confines of the jail. The women moved slowly. Heretics' crosses had been stitched to their chests. Weighed down by their trailing gowns, the ladies were last. The maids, less burdened, led. One was unveiled, her hair straggling past her waist. 
As they neared, people blessed themselves. It was a strange sight, the bent figures dark against the snow, the yellow crosses on their gowns, the bright cold sky above. The crowd muttered their names as if counting children who had been lost. Helene, Esme, Lady Christine, her sister Beatrice. But where was the one they had waited for? Where was the maid of Dame Alice Kittler? Thank you both, Neve Boyce and Paul Lynch. Grace by Paul Lynch is published by One World. Neve Boyce's Her Kind is out in 2019 and her current book, The Herbalist, is published by Penguin Ireland. Andrew Miller's debut novel, Ingenious Pain, won the 1997 Impact Dublin Literary Award. His latest novel, Now We Shall Be Entirely Free, is a story about war and revenge set in the Napoleonic era. Captain John Lacroix is newly returned from Spain, where he experienced a very hard war. He returns to his family home to recover and then sets off to Scotland on a quest for music. But one woman distracts him and gets in his way. Andrew joins me now over the line from Bath. Andrew, you grew up in an 18th century house in Bath and I myself grew up in a restoration era house in Dublin dating from 1704. And I know that that means something to me in terms of being immersed in the old from a child, really. Did your childhood home influence your interest in the historical, do you think? The more uh, I think about it, the, the more I think it did. Growing up in a in a house, it was 1790s, the house was uh, absolutely uh, had a powerful influence. I mean, look at the whole town uh, here in Bath is um, astonishingly sort of complete uh, 18th century city. The day-to-day influence of just being in those buildings, looking at those buildings, taking in that atmosphere, I, I'm quite sure it's uh, had a very powerful effect. I think it does. I think the, the shapes of the windows, even the way light comes into rooms is different in old houses. It is. It is. Yeah. I always think of you as a sailor. I've read The Crossing, your story about Maud, the woman who does the solo run across the Atlantic. And mm. this new novel, Now We Shall Be Entirely Free, has a great marine smell off it too. We get to spend a lot of time on, on the sea in boats. So can you tell me a little about the influence of the sea on your writing? Yeah. I mean, it's always interesting to me that people who really have nothing to do with the sea, who wouldn't uh, you know, hardly know one end of a boat from the other... I think they think about it a lot. <laughs> I think they're aware of it. The strange affection for the shipping forecast. The mirror of German culture was the forest and of British culture, it's the sea. And, I mean, it's in us somehow. And I sailed, I guess, from a fairly early age. My dad used to take us down and get rid of us for a couple of weeks down on the south coast. And then as a schoolboy, I sailed in sort of tall ships races on various boats. But... Uh, Books come out of strange places and the very particular environment of, of a cabin on a yacht, it's um, the smells of it, the snugness, the dampness, the um, all of that, uh, it, it's in me somewhere. Yeah, Andrew, maybe you could read a small section of the book for us to set it up. Books have origins that you can recall and origins that you can't. Um, in terms of the origins I can recall, I was learning a piece of music, a Scottish song called Mary Young and Fair on my mandolin. At the bottom of the manuscript, it mentioned that it was uh, it had been collected by a captain so-and-so in the Hebrides in 1815. And I was curious. I was thinking if this captain was a military person, 1815 is a strange year to be collecting music on a Scottish island, uh, you know, a fairly significant year in European military history. That started me wondering. So it's a book which, it's a few months in the spring and summer of, of 1809, and... 
John Lacroix is a cavalry officer who's just returned from a disastrous episode in the Peninsular War, part of the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, has returned to Britain to his home in a state of uh, collapse, recovers, and then rather than go back to his regiment and to the war, decides to head north, um, and he's on the run, effectively. So it's this is when he's actually at home in Somerset, recovering from the retreat to, to Karanya. He walked out most days with the dog, always, so far as she knew, keeping to the cross-country paths where he might meet a herdsman or a woodman or a peddler, but no one else, no one of any standing. Sometimes, outside his door with a tray in her hands, she heard him speak to himself. His deafness made him speak louder, and what she heard frightened her. It was as if he had a secret visitor, some old intimate whose company was no longer welcome, who troubled him and seemed with silences to get the better of him. Once, when she came in, she thought he had been weeping. He kept his face away from her, and she said nothing. It was not her place to comfort him, not directly. And that was Andrew Miller reading from his novel, Now We Shall Be Entirely Free. Um, Captain Lacroix falls in with a very bohemian crowd in this novel, and I was wondering where did the idea for that come from? Well, I've been reading about Coleridge and some of his friends. They were full of schemes to set up utopian communities. Uh, well, their, their plan was uh, to set one up in in America. It feels very modern, doesn't it? It feels very uh, very now. I mean, they they I mean they would sit up all night uh, making plans, in which everybody would would uh, yes the men would sit around <laughs> writing poetry while the I think the women did a lot of work. They were terribly excited about it, and it came to nothing because they had no money apart from anything else. Also, some of the people who hung around uh, William Blake. And I just like the idea of, of a kind of Georgian hippie. They are the sort of vanguard of, of a community that possibly is never going to form. And for John Lacroix arriving, well, he's intrigued by the difference. He's excited by it, but also he's a little uneasy, a little startled. He doesn't quite know what they're going to say next. Yeah. Whatever about Georgian hippies, it's funny you say that that was a note I took from myself <laughs> uh, when I was reading the book. But when we write historical novels, we have to render a period in a way that's recognisable to the period, in a sense, but also recognisable to modern readers. And I was wondering, are you obsessive about, about getting things right in terms of the period? Or are you quite loose and free with yourself and your research? Both. I really don't want to irritate anybody by making a mistake with something I could have easily checked and got right. I am careful, but I'm also playful. I mean, I, I, it's a dream of a time. It's an evocation. It's a dream. I'm not trying to reconstruct it in the way, I, I don't know, a, a historian or an archaeologist you know, tries to reconstruct the past. I research, I study, I think, and then... You know, with all storytelling, there's, there's that strange thing of a lot has to be remembered, a lot has to be forgotten. So there's always, you know, but after res researching, readying myself for a book, I, I have a period when I just leave it. And I want things to fall away. And I want what I need uh, to stay, clearly. But I want the rest just to go. And that's kind of how I, how I treat the period. I'm not obsessing uh, about uh, authenticity at every point. Once you have a feel for a period, you know, you have to trust that. Once you, once you think, yeah, I get it. I think I understand something of the lives of these people and how it might have felt to be there, to sit in a room in this house or to walk 
down a lane in this village, then that's enough, really. And I don't... Uh, I like play. <laughs> and I think uh, that sort of approach, I suspect, gets us a little closer than a slightly dogged trailing of the facts as we know them. I mean, because uh, there's only so much we, we, we can possibly know. Exactly. It's something Hilary Mantel does beautifully. She has a kind of inspired play in Wolf Hall. And she talks about historical fiction being an aspect of mourning for her that she grieves for the past and she wants to get back there. And that's why she writes books like Wolf Hall. That's an, I hadn't heard that. An aspect of mourning is very, is very curious uh, and interesting. Yeah, I can absolutely uh, feel that in, in, in her work now you mention it. And she, yeah, she, she, um, she's, a, she's a fabulous example of, of the right way, I think, to approach setting a book um, a, a, little, a little back in time. Having said that, to me, it doesn't feel very different from, from you know, uh, I've written books set in the more or less now. It's not, a, it's not an entirely different uh, experience. It's not, you know, when the actual day-to-day writing, it's not so different. No, it's not, because it's still all about people in trouble. That's all it's about. Yeah, that's right. Andrew, yeah. it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Uh, great pleasure. Andrew Miller is Now We Shall Be Entirely Free is published by Scepter. That's all we have time for this evening. Thanks to all my guests and to you for listening. The show was produced by Regan Hutchins and the series producer is Zoe Commons.